As we move into March, many commentators have set their stall out in terms of what they expect for stock markets in 2017. Whereas this time last year the talk was all about deflation and negative interest rates, the shock political events of 2016 have shifted economists' focus towards the potential impact of protectionism. This is quite a change and has implications for valuations of major asset classes like shares and bonds. I'm James Norrington, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Yale University professor and Nobel laureate Robert Schiller, who is 2017 president of the American Economic Association, is leading the discussion on the importance that changing and prevailing narratives have on investment performance. Professor Schiller, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, now, you've spent much of your career analysing the valuation of stock markets, uh, notably through the use of your cyclically adjusted price earnings or CAPE ratio. And in recent years, you've become increasingly interested in the role narratives have in influencing economic activity and stock market returns. If we look today at the valuation of the S&P 500, which on a CAPE of 29 is way above its long run moving average, we often hear that US equities are due for a fall. We also hear that the decisions of policymakers, such as the rate hike actions of the Federal Reserve or the potential fiscal policy of the Trump administration, will be key to the fortunes of equities. You stress the point, however, that the narratives inspired by policymakers are even more important than their actions. What do you mean by this and what are, in your view, the most important narratives supporting equity valuations today? Well, I was advocating more research on narratives. It's a difficult subject. It's more psychological. I'm finding myself reading psychoanalysts these days. So, because the, the I think economists have failed to see the deep uh, implications of the workings of the human mind and what it is that drives people to buy. It's often things that don't look respectable. It's feelings that they have or uh, scripts that other people suggest. So, for example, right now in the United States, we have Donald J. Trump. You might have heard of him. Yes, we have, <laughs> yep. Gets a bit of coverage here, too. <laughs> but he, uh, he is a model for living. He had a television, he had a couple of television shows that featured him in a, in a reality TV format in which he, he was modeling a, a certain lifestyle. It's kind of intangible. What is it? What is it, what is it that people like about him? Well, something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, he wrote a book with Meredith McIver called How to Get Rich. He's written other books as well. Uh, maybe the co-author had a major hand in writing them. But they sound like him. And the lesson from his How to Get Rich book was, think big, live large. So what does it mean to live large? Well, I think in the first thing, it means spend a lot of money, show off, live in a very ostentatious house, wear the nicest designer clothes, don't skimp. Well, that's a, that, that narrative, to the, you see, it's a narrative about Trump, but it's also a script for living. Uh, at other times in history, we wouldn't do that. We would consider it uh, embarrassing, out of touch with the times. So we see um, Donald Trump has a big hand in, in, uh, in or even a tiny hand in, uh, in, in pushing investment in narratives that, 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 we're, um, that, that are taking hold at the moment, which, uh, which find their way into, into the stock market. Um, uh, and it's interesting as you know, behavioral finance becomes ever more important in, in explaining um, uh, sort of the, the lags in valuations and, and phenomena such as uh, momentum and, and value in the markets. Where do you see evidence of neuroscience and, and heuristics uh, playing out in financial 
financial markets and how are narratives being welded on to the behavioural um, patterns that you've seen from looking at the research of psychologists and, and, and in other fields? Well, psychology and neuroscience are heavily intertwined. They're both studying the human brain, but they have a different toolkit for studying. Uh, what, the, what is inspiring neuroscience right now are the new imaging techniques where they can see pathways in the brain. Uh, and and uh, they can watch neurons firing and single neurons and see uh, how they connect up and what they influence. But it's all psychology, and eco- economics has never been completely separate from psychology either. But the toolkit that economists learn is general equilibrium modeling, mathematical techniques, econometrics. These have, I think, they could be more tuned in with neuroscience, and that's what, and with psychology, and I think that's the new trend. It's going to develop over a period of years. But it is so fundamental to economics to get right how the brain works. Uh, economics has, in the past, used as-if modeling. People behave as if they were optimizing some utility function. Well, there may be some truth in that, but we have to go beyond that. We have to figure out what the brain really does. And you touch on this in your your book with George Akerlof, uh, Fishing for Fools, um, that a lot of the equilibriums that we find in economics, um, which which would um, impact on investors in in, in terms of looking at the the, the price that they the the bid offer spread, the price they pay for a company, um, for share for stocks, um, uh, and 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 what are sort of the the behavioural patterns that investors can can sort of see in themselves, which causes them to be fished as fools, if you like, um, uh, you know, sort of paying not spotting when a company is overvalued or or, or, or not spotting, you know, what's a scam. So, say, um, in the in the tech bubble, for example, why was that able to run away so much? Yeah, well, that's these are big questions. <laughs> Many books have been written uh, about these topics. For example, uh, Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, which came out a few years ago. It's a great book. I recommend it. But it's a long, thick book, and it's not the only one. So, in terms of in- investing, uh, what is it? It relates to some of our deepest drives, it's for self-actualization. You want to prove yourself. You don't want to be shown to be a sucker. Uh, you want, <laughs> I don't know. You tend to be overconfident. Now, that's a principle that psychologists uh, have uh, remarked and shown that most people think they're above average. I suppose most people know that already. <laughs> it seems that way, right? There are a lot of know-it-alls out there. That's for sure, yeah. <laughs> And why do people trade so much? The, the, the volume of trade seems way too high. Why, why do people think they know? These are puzzles, but they relate to something in our brain. Uh, I don't know where to start. There's so many things that one could say. Part of what goes on in our brain through evolution has produced a, uh, an attitude toward risk-taking. And uh, maybe it's a little higher when testosterone levels are higher. <laughs> we have evolutionary-derived systems that manage our risk-taking. Part of it is that we are always living in an uncertain environment, and uh, nature has imbued us with a certain level of animal spirits, which are willingness to take leaps in the dark uh, in an inspired moment. But these inspired moments uh, come and go, (laughs) not just for individuals, but for whole societies, and these things help drive markets. At the moment, so with uh, a situation we're in a low return world with uh, lower bond yields, 
are we more prepared to take those leaps in the dark now with investing in risky assets uh, like equities um, for, for that reason? Yeah, I think, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to capture the zeitgeist. You know, it's, there's many different perspectives and views. But I think that one thing that's happened is people are, they're not exactly inspired. We're, we're still living in a zero interest rate world. They're still skeptical about a lot of investments, but uh, they want to invest in stocks. They're, they're investing more in real estate in many places. They're pushing up prices there. It's a mixture of inspira- or wishful thinking inspiration and also still fear that uh, the world is changing fast. A lot of jobs are being eliminated and people, they no longer think, well, my father was a carpenter, so I will be a carpenter. That's out the window. What your father did has probably already been replaced by a machine. You have to be thinking smart, and you don't feel so smart. And then you invest in stocks, you try it, and it goes up, and now you think, I've discovered my genius. <laughs> so it's all this inner turmoil that ultimately drives the stock market decisions. Right, and and you know, not the impact of policymakers, or, or rather, is it is it the 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 policymakers they create a narrative that helps people in imbue this confidence and and push their own narratives to drive up prices and and to to take action to take risky actions. Well, I didn't mean to say that policymakers aren't important. They are important, but they're not the only thing. And I think uh, there's a tendency in the news media to overstress them because they're so visible, right? And they're out there. And they'll, they'll make speeches every few days. There's always something. And people like human interest. They like to see some guy that they can either love or hate who's making, uh, putting himself or herself on the line. But policymakers, I think, themselves have at some level an appreciation of narratives and view themselves as offsetting the pernicious effect of bad narratives. So, for example, when Northern Rock uh, had a run, uh, what was that, 2007, yeah. the British policymakers took immediate action to uh, correct the run on the bank. And I think that was probably because they, they could hear the old narrative of a bank run reemerging. There hadn't been a bank run in the U.K. since 1866. And so they, they thought, if we break that, streak and, and have a new bank run right now in the time of financial crisis, it's going to be bad. So the policymakers themselves, they don't have a official theory that stresses narratives, but it becomes obvious to them when they see what's going on, and they try to manipulate narratives. Maybe there's a bit of sympathy there for somebody like Mark Carney um, uh, when, uh, in the aftermath of the UK's vote to leave the European Union last year, he took very strong affirmative action uh, and introduced a new round of QE and uh, cut uh, interest rates to, to, to just 25 basis points. And he was actually widely pilloried for overreacting, but, but had he not seized control of that narrative, um, potentially things could have gone wrong. Yeah, I think we should count him as a success. As a success. Uh, give him credit for the uh, uh, failure of his own warning. But what he was, I think, basing his alarm on was kind of a new narrative coming from economists emphasizing economic policy uncertainty. 
as a cause of uh, of bad economic performance. So recently, there's a, a work by Baker, Bloom, and Davis that created a economic policy uncertainty index, and they show that in history, when this is uncertainty about what the government is going to do and or what laws and regulations will will hold, and they show that when that index is shows a lot of uncertainty, the economy tends to perform poorly. So maybe that that was influencing Carney's worries. Maybe he eliminated the policy uncertainty by coming forward very strongly in support of, of markets. But not, and ironically, the, it'll be hard for him to get credit for that. Like in a sports game, you know, if the referee has a good game, he's um, or the umpire, uh, U.S. sports, um, then then he's not visible. You know, I think that the people with the best ideas are generally not visible. <laughs> okay, how many people could name the discoverer of penicillin? of streptomycin, of other things like They're so important to our lives, but nobody, almost nobody remembers their name. <laughs> Penicillin, that leads us into a nice analogy, because in terms of uh, attempts to quantify narratives, um, you've spoken about the potential to adapt models for the speed with which epidemics spread to quantifying the speed with which a narrative takes hold. Would you like to explain a little bit more about that um, and also um, the sort of data inputs that you think would be useful for these? For example, I've seen studies where, um, say, in 2015, Houlihan and Creamer were using social media and the options market to try and predict the stock market. Do you have any thoughts uh, on that type of study? Well, I think this is a coming thing. We're going to see. It's already increasing. I documented in my presidential address, Narrative Economics, that all social sciences are speaking more about narratives now in the past few years compared with before. And that's because we have databases that now allow you, with some success, to track narratives. Uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of uh, analysts are, are looking at uh, data on uh, web searches or tweets or uh, other social media. Or, or news media, it's all electronic. It's, it's amazing what world we're leaping into with the future of uh, digital technology and the ability now to track narratives. So actually, I, I'm thinking that what we know now about narratives is only a small part of what we will know in the future. So that's fascinating. We've actually we've got a colleague of ours, uh, Ian Smith, who did a, a feature in, in the Investors Chronicle last year, where he tried to predict stock returns based on the sentiment of analysts and uh, Twitter um, mentions. So I think he's updating that in about uh, in, in about a few months' time. So it'd be interesting to see how that does. Yeah, the interesting thing will be where this whole literature has gone in ten years' time. <laughs> I don't know. There'll be so many different measures of narratives and uh, zeitgeist and. It's, it's going to be big. It's going to be big, and perhaps uh, that's something that we'll have an index and an ETF on in 10 years' time, perhaps. <laughs> I bet we will. I bet we will. Professor Robert Schiller, thank you ever so much for your time. And uh, for more on this topic, uh, visit the Investors Chronicle website, where uh, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago on the fairy tales of investing. Um, and actually, I'd watch out in a couple of months for my colleague Ian's piece, where he updates his own stealth stocks, looking at the sentiment around companies um, and to see how they do and see how that portfolio is done a year. Thanks again, Professor Schiller. All right, bye. And join us again soon, Investors Chronicle. Thank you. Bye-bye.